Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what is going on tonight, my friend? Uh, Matt, once again, I am on the road in a hotel. Uh, I could have remembered to to get the good microphone uh, when I went back home last weekend but i forgot again um hope to be back in the studio uh next week i do however i hear my sources tell me you got good news i do indeed because drum roll please we have two new patreon backers oh we are now up to lucky number 13. Our two new backers, they're already family because we have the sons of our good friend Josh Wheel joining us as Damian Wayne backers, David Wheel and Alexander Wheel. Oh! Yes. So thank you, David and Alexander. This now, as we said, puts us at 13. So we are only seven away from the Star Trek episode, folks. So we have talked about Alexander many times, many times. He's my favorite. But now we have to give love to David. I don't know anything about David. Well, we'll have to ask Josh the next time he's on. But one way or the other, now you're both our favorite. Uh, is is he older? Is he younger? You know what, Josh? Next time you come on, how about the you know beginning of the episode? Since I know we record kind of late, if we can, if the boys are both up. Come come by and say hi to the folks out there. Because because when I'm talking to David, I don't know whether I should be more careful or less careful with my swears. Because I think yeah. Alexander's what eight, something around there. Yeah, I'm bad remembering the the ages of my nibblings, let alone my friends' kids. I I can't tell you how many times this week somebody has asked me how old my nephew is, and I'm like. Anywhere between 8 and 15. Somewhere in there. My brother-in-law, he has a pandemic baby. So I've only met the baby twice. And I'm never... Was it like right at the beginning of the pandemic? Was it towards the end? And Not the pandemic, it's over, but you know. Somewhere in the middle, it's like, I don't know. I, I get... It's, it's still 2020. Right, exactly. It's like two or one or three and it's the same i've met my brother's daughter his daughter one of them was is less than a year old and the other is is again a pandemic baby so time has no meaning it is terribly none at all it is terribly confusing when you do not see those children as much as you would like can can we work on the teleporter technology please anything else yeah 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 you know um, of course, this obviously gets us closer to the uh, the Star Trek episode. You know, the bigger the ships get, the more they have to rely on like inner ship transporters rather than turbo lifts. Fascinating. Yeah, something like a Borg cube. It's got to be point to point transport because those things are the size of you know moons. That's no moon. It's a space station. Thank you. But these are short beginning of episode ramble tonight because I think we've got a lot to talk about. 
in tonight's story. We do story. have a lot to talk about. A lot of cops. A lot yes. of cops tonight. So, And that's, I think, something we'll have to discuss a little bit once we get past the this week, which I do. Because this week, we're back on the mean streets of Gotham with three stories starring the principal members of the GCPD. Renee Montoya, Harvey Bullock, and Jim Gordon. And that is the question. How do you, do you, the royal you, but also specifically the, you know, us, the you, me, me, right? Talk about stories with police protagonists in the year of our Lord 2023. Because these stories, the most recent of the stories we're talking about tonight is from the year 2003. And it is fairly dated, not in how it handles necessarily the police in the community, but certainly in how it handles LGBTQ stuff. But yeah, we we absolutely have to re-examine all kinds of copaganda in 2023. No doubt. It's funny. I'm reading a play for work, and it's set in 1992. And it's the part of the backdrop of the play is the Rodney King case. So it's not like suddenly in 2020, 2021, this became a new thing. It just sort of reached a critical mass at that point. Absolutely. Cops have always been bad. It's hard to sit back and look at these, these stories and these characters because Gordon and Montoya and to an only somewhat slightly lesser extent, Bullock, are hero cops. They have their frailties, but they are good people in a flawed system. And Gordon especially pushes back against that system. Like yes. Gordon, Gordon is the everyman trying to do right. And that while a noble fictional narrative is something that we see very little of in reality. There aren't that many noble whistleblower cops. And often when there are, they come to very bad ends. Uh, Absolutely. And who knows when we will get to um, Blue Wall in, uh, in this show. And it takes a much more complicated view and at the same time i think less nuanced or less interesting it's it's definitely more heavy-handed with that big turn that it takes yes gotham central does its best to show that the corruption the white boys club all of that but it spends most of its time focused on the cases while blue wall is much more of a character piece. Mm. Gotham central builds works, the character into the plot while blue wall is the plot serving the character arc and the points that it's trying to make. And as we have talked about numerous times in the column, the print column, Blue Wall is much more compressed. Yeah, which I often don't have a problem with because so much is decompressed. But that is a book that could have used two more issues. Absolutely. We haven't gotten to the finale yet, right? Uh, It comes out next week as we're recording. Ah, okay. 
uh, my my memory is is very frail. No, no. Final issue is next week as we are recording, so a couple weeks before this drops. Which is which is too bad because as much as I again question the place of propaganda in 2023, I fucking love all of the books tonight. Uh, yeah. To yeah. to various degrees, but there is just man, a police procedural just goes down so smooth. It does. And these are three really solid stories. And it is the the eternal struggle with propaganda when it comes to quality artistic work that is problematic because of the social agenda that it is portraying. And only one of these, I feel like, is full-on propaganda. Shock of shocks, the one from Chuck Dixon. But Oh, shock. Yeah. The others have a lot more nuance in both corruption and just the bad actors within a police force. That's a proper way to segue into the first story. Tonight, our first story is Half a Life. This is Gotham Central, issues 6 to 10. The writer is Greg Rucka, with art from Michael Lark, colors by Matt Hallingsworth, letters by Willie Schubert and Lee Lawfridge, and edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. The cover dates are June to October of 2003. Someone is out to ruin Renee Montoya's life. She's being sued, has been framed for drug possession and murder. But most of all, she's been outed as a lesbian to all of the GCPD and to her family. Now, it's a race against time by her partner, Crispus Allen, to prove she's innocent and save her from the man behind it all, Two-Face. Boom, boom, boom. This is a highly decorated story. This won both the Eisner and the Harvey for best story in the year it came out. I don't think it's aged all that well. Okay, how? I, I mean, Montoya... Her arc is great, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. But Harvey just comes off as well. I mean, he's supposed to be a bad guy, right? But just the idea of his obsession and his motivation of oh, you can you can just you can be with me now. It just comes off as just real, for lack of a better word, dumb. This is one of the problems with not reading the stories in order. Because you haven't seen the entire arc of their relationship up to this point. There is three years of stories leading up to this. Of him slowly becoming more and more obsessed with her. There's a Batman Chronicles. There's a bunch of stuff in No Man's Land. There's a Detective Comics story. All of it building this relationship and her constantly being like no like i i believe in you but him obviously kind of having puppy dog eyes for her there's a little bit of misery to this a little bit of i'm your number one fan and i will take you for my own maybe a little bit of chasing amy too oh yeah i mean i can see where you're coming from there but how many straight guys can you think of who were absolutely sure they could, you know, turn someone? Uh, it, well, especially if we're talking about straight white guys, like the uh, the number one 
signature move is overconfidence. Right. And I mean, Harvey is used to, he was Apollo. He was this handsome, can do no wrong guy before he became Two-Face. And in many ways, Montoya is the first person to touch him emotionally since Gilda. So his obsession is not outside the realm of his character. And they kind of do it only in one line, but I would have liked a little more talk about him seeing this as her having a double life and how that plays into his obsession. Exactly. It's there only for that one moment, but it's like, okay, that makes a lot of sense that that's the point where he's already kind of there. And then, oh, that's the one that pushes him right into the full-on manic two-face mode. We're the same, you and I. But setting that aside, so much of the other stuff here feels so true. Montoya's fear, then the way that the people around her react. The closing pages with her parents disowning her are heartbreaking. Yeah. The bigotry that she comes across within the GCPD is unsurprising. Mm, Very true. And the moment with her and Chris Allen, when he visits her in lockup. You should have trusted me. Yeah. It's a good moment. I do feel like he's doing a little bit of the, you know, my feelings are hurt. And now I want to center this moment on me. Which, granted, is a fairly common or logical reaction to feeling betrayed. Which I guess he does in in a respect that he feels like he gave her his full trust and she didn't give it to him. But at the same time, she was just outed as an imprisoned for murder. So it's kind of not about you, bro. Yeah. The the little tiny portion of Montoya's story that that hasn't aged as well as the rest is where we get in this discussion of like, oh, Montoya, you you chose to be gay. Like that is not even something we see in fiction or in discussion at this point. That has in 2023 that is that is rejected as any kind of talking point or rational, you know, discussion. I mean, outside of the furthest right then yes because there are still whack jobs who think that but again that is mouthed from her brother who is still struggling with her being gay 15 years after he learned it this is a really strong procedural on top of the tremendous character work that Raka does with Montoya because again he's been building this arc since his first Batman story. His first Batman story was a Batman Chronicles short about Montoya. He has historically been strong with female characters. I'll say oh, that. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of his work, Whiteout, Queen and Country, Stumptown. Granted, his novels, the, the main character of his novels is a bodyguard named Atticus Kodiak, but Atticus is surrounded by strong women. That's a good-ass name. Yeah. Plus, I mean, that's not even taking into consideration Black Widow, Elektra, Wonder Wonder Woman. Woman. Chris Sabella does the same thing. Uh, I was just saying, Chris Sabella does the same thing. Uh, Yes. Writes consistently strong, positive female characters. 
Yes. And Gotham Central is here. I kind of wish we had read a little bit more. You've only read before this Soft Targets. I had read the first arc on my own. Okay. Just for the sake of, you know, enjoying good comics. And then we read Soft Targets. So I guess I'm about up to, what would that be, about uh, 20 issues or so? It's 15. Soft Targets is 12 through 15. One through five, and then... This is six through ten. There's a one-off at 11, and then soft targets. So, yeah. So you're, uh, that's a little less than half. The series runs 36. So you're... Because we can't have good things. Yeah. I love the dynamic between Montoya and Alan. Yes. I think Chris Allen is a great character and he's such a curmudgeon and he's so strict and by the book, he's the opposite of Bullock. He's the opposite of Montoya's last partner who was. Now just... r- remind me, he has been sidelined in this portion of Gotham central and they make several references to it. What happened to Bullock? One of the lead-ins to this series was an inter-Bat family crossover called Officer Down, where Gordon is shot in the back in an alley, and nobody knows who did it. And eventually, they find out that there was a guy who, years ago, Gordon busted. Guy went into Witsack. And so his record, his Witsack record was clear of anything. And he, for years, has blamed Gordon for ruining his life. And after No Man's Land, the GCPD did a major recruitment drive. So this guy, with his clean record and his clean identity, finally saw the opportunity for revenge, got a job in the GCPD, waited for the right moment, and shot Gordon. Uh Uh-oh. And I can't remember exactly why, but they're having a hard time sticking the the case to him. So the guy went into Witsack because of the Chicago mob. So Bullock may or may not have, you know, told the mob where to find him. And so as they've begun to investigate what happened, Bullock just hands in his shield because they, while they can't necessarily prove that he did it, the cloud of suspicion would have been over him forever. Yeah, I'm going to go home. Smoke some stogies, eat some hot dogs, take some time off. Fuck you guys. He eventually shows up again as kind of a drunken, washed up version of himself. And I think the next major Gotham Central arc, one or one of the next couple of Gotham Central arcs, where he and Montoya run into each other again and it becomes a thing. But for now, he is out. And Alan transferred from Metropolis around the same time Maggie Sawyer did, again, right after No Man's Land. He joined the GCPD right after No Man's Land. I'm pretty sure he was another guy who came over from Metropolis. And he, his death is the end of Gotham Central. That's the, the final couple arcs deal with his final story before a whole thing that we will eventually get to and is kind of... It was an interesting choice to go to bring that character where they did but it's it's not a whole thing which is what 
no man's land was. Yeah. At least the uh, the earthquake. And we have reference in this story. Oh, wait. We're underground? Question mark? Yeah. I mean, you got to think this is not... No Man's Land was only a couple years before this. No Man's Land is not that far of a memory at this point. So, yeah, the quake is still a big deal. So that that is a great... That Harvey, you know, is like, yeah, I'm going to set up in this hotel that was just... Paved over. It's a logical. Literally Gotham underground. Literally. And again, I think it's great how Rucka works in all of this character in this story while never sacrificing plot momentum. No, uh, these, uh, what, five issues just zip along pretty quickly. And he knows when he can take a step back from forward plot to have the moment where Maggie Sawyer calls Montoya into her office. And even then he starts out doing plot stuff in that scene. It's not immediately like, so let me tell you what happened when I came out. It's okay. So IAD is looking into you. Why? And by the way, and it would have been so easy and so lazy to have Montoya immediately accept Maggie Sawyer as a mentor and someone who she could confide in. And no, Montoya wants nothing to do with it. Montoya- exactly. Like she, she says straight up, you haven't lived my life. You're not a Latina. You haven't been, you know, forcefully outed. Like you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. How did you take the, I guess, reveal? I'm not going to say twist. It's not really a twist. The reveal that it's one of the internal affairs officers who's been feeding Two-Face all the information. If I had been able to sit down and read Gotham Central from, let's say, 1 to 15, it probably would have been more impactful. But just picking up this arc right in March of 2023, kind of cold. It didn't strike me as particularly stunning, right? You just kind of assume that, and this is another police procedural trope, all IAD guys are assholes. They're all bad guys, even if they're trying to clean up police corruption. They're douchebags, for lack of a better word. And that is a trope that always bugs me. Because that is a real propaganda trope. Oh, yeah. SVU pioneered that shit. Yeah, that internal affairs are the bad guys. And it's like, but no, they're trying to forward accountability. It's why I do like the Esperanza, the main IAD officer. He's the good guy. He is doing the right thing. And he's not being a complete douche about it. Meanwhile, you could see it coming almost a mile away that his partner Conway is dirty. And I do like that it's Two-Face holding his family over him because that actually is one of the examples of the thing that Scott Snyder does in My Own Worst Enemy, that Harvey knows all this stuff about people. Nobody else knew that this guy had an ex-wife and a kid in California. But Harvey knows all this shit about people, and he knows exactly the screw to turn. 
Because, of course, as the former district attorney, he would be intimately familiar with the police. And for your problems with Eternal and how it soft-pedaled the Gordon trial, well, we don't get a lot of courtroom here. The stuff that we saw with Montoya for her arraignment felt like something that Rucka actually took the time to get right, or it felt more right to me. I'm trying to think back about that scene. It certainly wasn't long, but it was at least as authentic as SVU. And I I love the fact that she suddenly has this new lawyer out of nowhere. And it's like, yeah, by the way, Bruce Wayne paid for this and he'll pay your bond. Because, of course, Bruce would know all of the cops. He would know which cops are worth protecting and defending and which cops would be better served in jail. And again, the Two-Face stuff leading up to this had a lot of interaction between Bruce and Montoya and Harvey and Jim during No Man's Land. Here, he knows she's not bent. And I'm sure he had a suspicion immediately that this was Harvey because he knows about how obsessive Harvey can be. But this is also, you can tell from just one or two little lines that this is at a point where all of the Batman the Animated Series created history between Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent isn't there. Because when he's talking about the lawyers, like, I knew Wayne was going to get involved. Like, it's not Bruce. It's not my, my friend. It's, it's just Wayne. It's very casual, the, the last name, the contemptuous use of a last name. Bruce Wayne had no connection with Harvey Dent in the comics at this point. It's Batman. Which is, which is the better story. I think the Batman the Animated Series version is fine for what it is, but we didn't need that background in the comics. It's a different continuity. It's a different story. And I'm perfectly happy if that hadn't been brought in. And we certainly didn't need the uh, Scott Snyder boyhood stuff. I was also not totally in love with Bruce at the very end when he comes in. It strikes me as fascinating that when Rucka is writing a Batman story, he gets Batman so right. But when it's someone else's story and Batman is in it, Batman is invariably an ass. We saw it in the Heikatia. And here, Harvey has ruined Renee's life. He has put her through all of this stuff. And Bruce stops them from fighting and gives her, I couldn't let him kill you or you kill him. And as he walks away, you're welcome. It's like, really? That is not the empathetic Batman that I would have liked to see. But again, there's a couple of minor notes in a story that is a tremendously good story. Oh, and this is the story where Josie Mack enters Gotham Central, who had been a character who was introduced in Detective Comics backups, in a backup serial before this. Because she was one of the characters who was not original to this series. And I can't remember if they ever make it clear. Did you get what was going on with her and her meta abilities? No. Yeah, she's a psychometric. She can 
touch an object and follow its trail. That's how she was able to find the police car that hit the mailbox. She touched the paint on the mailbox and then was able to follow it or sense the match of it when she was in the garage. Mm -hmm. She has low-level psychic powers, which she doesn't like to use, and they don't talk about much in Gotham Central when she appears, but they give hints of her meta-abilities there. As far as superpowers go, not a great one. No, but for a detective, it's pretty useful. Absolutely. And my my final note, I love the fact that Batman, A, impersonates a GCPD officer hiding in the shadows, and then the GCPD officer will just kind of assume that Batman can pretty much impersonate any of them. Yeah, Crow, he's uh, he's got you down. I really wish we would see some of those GCPD officers again, the ones who were original to this series. Driver and Crow and Sarge. Sarge is in uh, Blue Wall, but still, I'd like more of those characters. I always liked it when the GCPD was more than just... Montoya and Bullock. Right, exactly. And we had such a a life in the, the 80s and 90s into the early aughts through Gotham Central, and then it just sort of faded. Where is Maggie Sawyer currently? She is police commissioner of Bluthaven. She just became Commissioner of Bloodhaven six months ago. Unsurprisingly, the Commissioner of Bloodhaven was really, really crooked. <laughs> and when Nightwing was able to get him locked up, they brought in someone who they knew would be incorruptible and would clean up the department. And so it's Maggie. Who, again, another great character. Another really strong character and... I'm glad that she hasn't completely faded away because there was a period there right after she and Kate Kane broke up where you didn't see Maggie a lot. I mean, maybe she moved into the Superman books in the new 52 after the Batwoman series, but I don't remember. I just like, okay, good. She's back in Nightwing. I'm glad. One of the first canonically out queer characters in DC comics, her and the Pied Piper over in flash and a minor supporting character in the Ostrander Suicide Squad. I think they're the first three visibly like, yeah, we're gay, not coded, oh, and extraño. That's a character that Steve Orlando did a great job of redeeming, but was an awful stereotype in the mid-80s. Like, oh boy. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But... I think that means it's time to put Gotham Central 6 through 10, half a life on the big board. All right. We currently have 234 stories on the big board. God damn. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman. Batman Year One. Down at number 50 is Batman, The Vengeance of Bane, The Origin of Bane. And still hanging in there at a sexy 69, it's Batman and Robin, numbers one to three. 100 is Batman Eternal, volume two, the middle chapter. Hush war. Hush war. Down at 150 is The Brave and the Mold, the Batman Swamp Thing team up from Batman volume three, number 23. 
Down at 200 is the Harley and Ivy miniseries. And hey, down at the bottom, guess what? It's still White Knight. Still sucks. All right. So I'm scrolling up. This is is pretty high on the list for me. I don't think it approaches soft targets at 12. And that's rarefied air. This just didn't hit me at a real emotional level. And that's probably because I don't have all of the backstory necessary, right? I will absolutely accept for the sake of argument that there is a lot of buildup that goes into Harvey's obsession. Just reading this chapter, it comes off as fairly shallow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and I'll be honest, this is the beginning of a major emotional arc for Montoya that we see build throughout the rest of Gotham Central and through 52. And it is a tremendous character arc, but I have a soft spot for Soft Targets. Soft Targets is my favorite arc of Gotham Central. Maybe it's not the best. I know th this has a strong claim on the most important arc in Gotham Central for what it does for the character of Rene Montoya. But I just love Soft Targets. It's such a perfect Joker story. And there are so so many Joker stories and so few that just get the character so well. Let's look then at, uh, we'll say, top 30. Yeah. Right I now, mean, 30 is uh, Urban Legends 1 through 6, Cheer, the Tim Drake coming out story. No, that's the Jason Todd. Cheer is the Jason Todd and the Cheer Drops and the, the little kid. Pardon, pardon me then. Uh, which one is the uh, the Tim Drake coming out story? That's not on the board yet. Wait, I thought it was. No, we have not done. Uh, that's six through eight. If you say we, so. We did it for the column. We didn't do it for the pod. Okay. We did the one shot where they reprinted that and added a couple of other stories. Okay. I still think this falls above that. Okay. I think it's somewhere in the 20s. Yes, I was just looking at that. I don't think it beats Nightfall at 20. Right. It's definitely better than Cheer, as much as I, I like Cheer. I think you could argue it anywhere in the 20s, but I don't think it goes past Nightfall Part 1, which actually has the story that makes Montoya more than just Gordon's assistant. Is that we, when we first saw her in Return of Scarface, she was there as you know, the uniformed officer who's Gordon's assistant. Nightfall part one is when she goes up against Victor Zaz. That's great Montoya. What do you think about this in relation to Tech 500 to kill a legend at 23? That's that's right around where I'm looking. Oh, and I, by the way, as we have a bad habit of doing it, and I just want to point it out, the art here is stunning. Oh, yes. Very we didn't, good. Everything we said about the art on Soft Targets and how tremendous and gritty Michael Lark's art is goes the same for this. It is some of the best crime art you can find in comics. So To Kill a Legend has that great idea in the end of a Batman born of gratitude and heroism instead of one born of pain 
I love that idea, but that is just a one issue little lovely grace note. While this takes the most important supporting character in the Batman mythos of the 90s into the aughts, is there a supporting character who has shown such legs and such development as Montoya since then? In the GCPD, no. No. And, well, yes, Montoya is, is also the question as a non-costumed character as well. That's the thing. Because, yes, there are Harley, there are other characters with superheroic identities who are centrally superheroic characters who might. But a character who is, generally speaking, a non-costumed figure... Montoya is top at least 10, if not five, non-costumed supporting Bat characters. Alfred, Gordon, Bullock, Tompkins, Lucius are probably the only five I can think of ahead of Montoya. Where's Harold? I love Harold. I'm thinking the new 22. Yeah, works for me. 22 is Anodyne, the first four issues of the Brubaker, Darwin Cook, Catwoman. Beautiful, but this this has such a strong character arc to it. So I'm thinking 22. Up next is A Bullet for Bullock. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 651. The writer is Chuck Dixon, with pencils from Graham Nolan, inks by Scott Hanna, Colors by Glenn Whitmore and lettered by John Costanza. Edited by Denny O'Neill and Scott Peterson. The cover date is October of 1992. Someone is gunning for Harvey Bullock, and the Rumpel detective must seek help from the least likely source, Batman. First up, problematic creator watch. Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan uh, have both given fairly severely right-wing interviews in support of certain insurrectionist former presidents so there oh yeah 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 when he used the bane line we really fucking loved it it was great yeah yeah not not in line with our way of thinking no they suck and trump sucks big time this story while it's not a good mystery is pretty fun this is a really fun story and is another story that was adapted and adapted pretty much note for note for Batman the Animated Series. This There's an episode that is almost exactly this with a couple of very minor tweaks. The conversation that Bruce has with Tim in this, he has with Alfred in the cartoon, and that's about it. Everything else is straight up right out of the comic. And it's perfect for that because it's such an easy little story it's like oh somebody's trying to kill harvey bullock harvey bullock asks batman for help there you go and there is precisely one person who we're pointed toward in the story as far as who's after bullock yeah it's not difficult to figure out who did it I mean, yeah, you got all these mobsters and such, but it's not hard to figure out 
that it's the landlord because he's there's no reason for that character to be there. It's it's almost like we talked about SVU earlier. It's almost like when you see the list of guest stars in an SVU and it's nobody you've ever heard of, nobody you've ever heard of, nobody you've Stephen ever Stephen Colbert. Of. Right. It's like, oh, guess what? Guess who's the bad guy? Hmm. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of bad guys and uh, problematic creators, the episode, the landlord is voiced by Jeffrey Jones. Eesh. Yeah. <laughs> speaking Eesh. of problematic. Mm. Yeah, look it up if you don't know, folks. Not good. Yeah, or, or don't look it up. But yeah, no, neither here nor there. And back to the, the story at hand. This is very 40s detective story, especially including Harvey Bullock's wonderfully pulpy narration. I love that this story is narrated by Bullock, and he's such a slob. Oh, boy, is he a slob. But his clothes are so fantastic. Oh, they are. I love the the check pattern of his suit. It's great. The Hawaiian Flaherty shirt. Mm-hmm. And this is where you get something that is flat out propaganda that Bullock willingly admits to bending the rules to get convictions, but he's doing it for the right reasons. So of course he's you know he's right police because you gotta bend the rules to make your cases. No, that's not how the system's supposed to work. The that system, pesky constitution. Right. Innocent until proven guilty. There's a dragnet. It's a radio. It's one of the radio dragnets where Joe Friday rails against Miranda rights and against, Because it's a brand new development. Yep. Uh, Miranda rights and certain requirements for uh, warrants when searching the person or the vehicle of a suspect because a guy gets off because some officer didn't follow the proper procedures and Joe Friday gets a long rant about how wrong that is. It's like, wow, that's not how any of this works. I uh, I have been participating in a criminal trial this week, and uh, I'll share with the good listeners out there, when police are interviewing a suspect, they are under no obligation to be truthful with that suspect. So, for example, and, and this is really weird when it comes up in front of a jury, right? So the, the statement in uh, in this trial, the cop says to the guy, yeah, we got you on video. All right, we we know exactly what happened. There's no video. We got you on GPS. We know exactly where you were. No GPS. And it's all trying to induce the suspect into a confession. And it's it's fascinating, right? That we have this expectation that the suspects in the interrogation room are to tell the truth, but the police, you know, they could get just straight up lie really weird to put that to a jury <laughs> matt's got nothing yeah there's nothing to say to that it is utterly an utterly bizarre quirk of the legal system quirk is probably too light a word but <laughs> still the 
dynamic between Batman and Bullock in this story is great. Yes, begrudging allies. This is the first major post-crisis interaction between the two characters. Because Bullock was a Batman character pre-crisis. Then post-crisis, he was gone for a number of years. He worked for Checkmate, for the feds, for a number of years. Mostly because the writers on the Bat titles at that time had no interest in using the character. But then Doug Mench came Yeah, Marv Wolfman and... He was never one of Alan Grant's. Alan Grant had Lieutenant Kitch, who was his GCPD character. But then Doug Mensch came back and Mensch co-created Bullock. And Dixon obviously has affection for the character. So when with them on the Bat books, Bullock returned and rose to prominence again. And I probably wouldn't also didn't hurt that Batman the Animated Series was using him prominently as well. Bullock and Montoya, I mean, like they they were right there with Gordon. They were yep. they were the triumvirate at GCPD. You could tell that Bruce Tim and the other producers that that period where Bullock was a major character is a period that they had affection for because that was also the period where Hamilton Hill was the corrupt mayor of Gotham, and who's the mayor on the animated series, but Hamilton Hill. So they obviously were drawing from that particular period quite heavily. Now here we're getting a Bullock who was not as corrupt as the pre-crisis Bullock was originally. Bullock was a dirty cop who wound up, you know, deciding to make the right choice and breaking away from the mayor who he was his fix-it man on the force and then became one of Gordon's trusted officers. Here, he's starting out in that position post-crisis as, you know, the cop who, Dirty Harry is too strong a word, but it's that part Columbo, part Dirty Harry, part something else. He certainly has no hesitation when it comes to physically abusing suspects. No. And Batman has more than one qualm about letting Bullock at the people that might be after him because Bruce like, I'm not setting somebody up for a suspect to die. Which is, I think, the subtext of what Bullock wants. Yeah, I think Bullock would be waiting for the guy to pull a gun. He wouldn't shoot him in cold blood, but if the guy happened to draw down on him, Bullock would have had no problem lighting him up like a Christmas tree. Oh, zero. And he has no problem, like, you know, hitting a suspect who's down on the head with the butt of a shotgun. Wha-bam! Nighty-night. Really, my only problem with this story is that it is... Well, well, hold on. First of all, I want to point out the Kelly Jones cover, which is fantastic. Yes. Which is much better than the covers we will see in the next story. But... The reveal is like, one, it's exactly, I think, one page. And, well, yeah, of course, once you start talking about a a landlord that's given him grief, a landlord in a rent-controlled apartment, yeah, we know exactly who it was. But other than that, it's a fun story. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a mystery. It feels more like a procedural No, because it's really not a procedural because we're outside the 
the system and much of it. But this story is more about the journey than about the destination. It's about having a fun little story that Harvey Bullock gets to narrate and you get to see him and Batman butt heads. Oh, by the way, Shark Watch. Shark Watch. Because our mobster that Bullock suspects, he's the shark. He's Vincent the Shark Starkey. So if Great White Shark counts, so does Vinny the Shark. Vinny the Shark. Total of one appearance, but still. It's a much lighter story than either of the other two tonight. It's an easy little one-off. And willingly admitting for all the other problems with them, I love Graham Nolan's Batman. I love the look of this story. I love the way he draws Bullock. I love the apartment is so untidy without being disgusting. Mm-hmm. Like it would be got, really got those underwears on the line right there. I like just some of the some of the panels where Bullock, you know, lights up a stogie and then you see him waving out the the match. Like it's just some good sequential storytelling in the art. Again, when he's talking to Batman is in, in his apartment, he just kind of picks up a pizza box that was sitting there on the floor and just picks out a slice and starts eating it. And it's just a little bit of character and it's, it's gross, but it's not like, it would be so easy to go. Uh, here's a, a dated reference. Uh, Joe's apartment on this, where it's just this disgusting bug filled mess. It's like, no, this is just a guy who doesn't give a crap. He's an adult, right? He's not covered in filth. He's just kind of a slob. Yeah. And I love how Bullock is the one person who doesn't obviously suspect the landlord because the landlord Nivens is so below Bullock's notice. Bullock would have never thought that this little pencil neck would be the guy. It had to be somebody like Vinny the Shark, some mobster who's... Some tough guy. Right, some tough guy who's got to be willing to go after a cop. No, the landlord doesn't even think of Bullock as a cop either. Again, that's not in his view. Bullock is a mess who's messing up his building. That's it. It is a trifle, but it is a very fun and very well done trifle. And I think with that, it's time to put Detective Comics number 651, a bullet for Bullock on the big board. Okay. I'm not saying it's up this high, but I'm just uh-huh. saying. So our highest real trifle is at 78. Where were you the night Batman was killed? So it's not going above that, obviously. But I think it could be somewhere in that upper echelon of trifles, the 78 to 110 area. Yeah. Not this... all of those are trifles, but there's a lot. Of the, our best trifles are in that range. I always fall back on Super Heavy. This is definitely better than Super Heavy at 132. Oh, yeah. I think this is probably in the 80s or 90s because as much as I generally enjoyed it, I would put this above 95, above Final Night. Yes. So we're between 78 and 95. The thing about this, this is a very competent comic. Absolutely. 
it's fun it's very but it is put together very very well and this area is it's trifles it's got a lot of very competent comics in there as you've often pointed out at 82 batman tmnt is a perfectly competent Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles crossover. It's everything you'd expect from the Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles crossover. But precisely nothing that you wouldn't expect. Right. And that's exactly With, what this is. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's not too ambitious, doesn't take any weird, strange turns. It's more or less a straightforward story. Images at 87. Legend of the Dark Knight 50. Refresh me on that one. That's one of the three versions of the first Joker story. That's the one with Cousin Melvin. Ew. Right. That one fell down there. That had the Cousin Melvin tax. If that had not had Cousin Melvin, that probably would have cracked the top 75. I think this is better than that. Now, right above that is Half an Evil. Smash that... and grab, Harvey. Smash and grab. Oh, I, I, I want to go back. I want to clarify a legal point. In Half a Life, Montoya says that the picture of her with Daria is uh, libel or slander. Uh, she says, I don't know which one it was. Uh, it's neither because it represented a true event. You did kiss your, as they say in the conclusion, lover. Now, that could be that could be misframed or represented in a defamatory way. But if it's true, it's not liable. Some form of invasion of privacy? Um, let's see. Were they on the street? Oh, they might have been. They might have been in front of her apartment. Yeah. If you're on the street, if you're in public view, if someone, in essence, doesn't have to use some kind of enhanced sense, they don't have to use advanced technology if they are not intruding into a space, we would consider... The tort might be intrusion, a physical, mechanical, electronic, otherwise invasion to someone else's solitude or seclusion. That might be a, a tort. Publication of private facts might be another privacy tort, but that would require something being in private. Mm. Anyway, I think better than images. Well, what about right in between there? Right in between half and evil and images. Sounds good. All right. New 87. It's time, Matt, for the final story of the night. Indeed. This final story is Loyalties. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 159 to 161. The writer is John Ostrander, with pencils by David Lopez, inks by Dan Green, colors by James Sinclair and Digital Chameleon, letters by Kurt Hathaway, and edited by Harvey Richards and Andrew Helfer. The cover dates are November of 2002 to January of 2003. An old case from his Chicago days comes back to haunt Jim Gordon in the days right after the events of Batman Year One. As corrupt cops seek a witness only he knows the identity of, Batman must go to Chicago to try to save Gordon and the witness, Gordon's niece, Barbara. This is another... I don't know, endorsement for the post-crisis change, just making Barbara uh, Gordon's uh, daughter rather than this complicated niece situation. Yeah, because th this was post-crisis was they made her the niece. Then New 52, it's one of the few things the New 52 fixed where they were just like, yeah, forget all that. Or even that, no, it was even I think it was Infinite Crisis that fixed it, where they just 
you know, one of those little minor tweaks to continuity where it was like, yeah, we're just going to ignore that whole niece thing that, you know, we give Sean Gordon Murphy rightly a lot of shit for the Jason Todd being the first Robin thing. But Frank Miller did completely forget Barbara existed in Batman year one. I will give Frank Miller allowances for a couple of things. The rampant racism, Islamophobia. Misogyny. No. Don't forget the misogyny. Misogyny. Uh, no. But I will I will grant him an allowance for that. Sean Gordon Murphy gets no passes whatsoever. I also think it would have been a lot easier to argue, to have done a thing there where Barbara stayed back in Chicago to finish out the school year and had been staying with friends or family versus making it the whole complicated niece thing. There were easier ways to write around that when they were adding her back into post-crisis continuity. Especially when you're just going to have to bump off both of her parents yeah, to, to get her into a living situation with Jim. That's weird. And this story does that quite awkwardly. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's like, boy, I guess they never explained that before this point. And now Ostrander was like, well, I guess I kind of got to deal with it. So yeah, mom, mom was heavily medicated and got hit by a log truck. Okay, she did. I guess first, I've said it before, every time we've done a story by him, and I'll say it here again, I am an unabashed big fan of John Ostrander. Oh yes, this this is a good story. Uh, the covers suck. Covers suck out loud. Yeah, uh, but this is a good story. Choice. The weird choice to have such different style on the covers than in the book. The the covers are just kind of a goofy, cartoony style. Like it's it's very strange. Yeah, and David Lopez is not my favorite artist in comics but he does very middle of the road middle of the line solid superhero art it's not flashy but it's good for what it is hey you don't always need flashy no you don't and you you just gotta make the fucking sausage man yep i'm not necessarily saying that as a bad thing i'm just stating it as a fact here for the record as i don't want to forget to discuss the art Sausage needs to be made, and it needs to be food-grade sausage. Yes. Now, one of the things that gives this particular story a sense of verisimilitude that we don't get in a lot of these type of stories, Ostrander, I'm not sure if he was a native of, but lived for many, many years in Chicago. So all of the bits of Chicago geography in the Chicago part of this story are accurate. He was an actor in Chicago in his younger days. So I, I know that. I don't think he was a native, but there's a, that's a nice little bit where you get a major city that isn't New York properly represented in a comic book. Ostrander set uh, the Hawkman series, Hawkworld, that he wrote in Chicago as well. So he, he's written plenty of Chicago stories. Uh, originally an actor in the Organic Theater Company in Chicago, Ostrander moved into writing comics into 1983. Hmm. Well, there we go. But So this 
this is a story of Jim Gordon doing the right thing and getting the shit knocked out of him for it, which is an often a thing that happens to poor Jim Gordon. But he never he never caves. He never gives in because he's tough as shit. Yeah. The title here is the theme of this book. This is a book about loyalty. Jim's loyalty to his niece and to his principles. The perverted loyalty of these corrupt cops to their corrupt cop boss. And Bruce's loyalty to Gordon. Because reading this, I don't see this as taking place that long after year one. Oh, absolutely not. Especially when Bruce talks about, I don't have that many allies. It's very important to save Gordon. And Gordon doesn't view Batman as someone he completely trusts yet. So we're not at Monster Man, Mad Monk. We're somewhere in between year one and monster man mad monk and i've said it before i'll say it again this is my favorite era of batman storytelling like right batman can go to this other city and totally threaten the goons like i'll kill you i'll fucking throw you out of this window don't make me ah and they believe it because the the legend of the Batman is such that maybe he drinks their blood. And Gordon feeds into that in just such a delightful moment. And, I love that. And you have this moment where the Chicago police is at, are, are after him. Like, I was kind of hoping for like a whole Blues Brothers inspired chase. But yeah, you can just you can do so much storytelling in this very specific period without the whole Bat family. And the Bat family has its place. It really does. But just strip everything down to Gordon and the Bat and police who are very skeptical of the Bat, corrupt police commissioners who are very nervous about the Bat, and mayors of Gotham and, and or Chicago who are nervous about the Bat. It just gives you a lot more opportunities to tell stories. And I got a real soft spot for this whole era. I knew this one would speak to you. Of course. I remembered it as this era and I'd forgotten just how early it was. I was like, oh, wow, we're like right after year one. This is really just Batman finding his footing. And Ostrander gets... Alfred as well. Alfred has a couple of great Alfred lines. Glad I could be of service. Uh. Or is there ever a point where you feel bad about embarrassing yourself? So Bruce Wayne flies to Chicago and settles down, and it's like Porter's like, "Why are you here?" Like, "Oh, yeah, I like pizza. Yeah, you can't get good deep dish in Gotham. There are places that deliver. Yeah, but I want my food warm. Oh, Bruce." And uh, do you ever grow weary of debasing yourself? <laughs> yes, it's perfect. It's just absolutely perfect. And Ostrander writing Barbara is great. Because Ostrander is, along with his late wife, Kim Yale, I mean, they're the ones who gave us Oracle. They're the ones who took the flaming wreckage that was killing joke and what was done to Barbara and built something stronger out of it. And so Ostrander coming back and writing this story of a young Barbara 
is something that was well worth coming back to. I really enjoyed seeing him writing the character again. And again, just fun, weird little note. When Babs is talking to her friend about things that she might do with her life, she talks about, you know, maybe becoming a detective and the friends like, like Nancy Drew and Barbara's like, no, more like V.I. Warshawski. Warshawski is a fictional P.I. created by a writer, Sarah Paretsky. And those mysteries are set. Guess where? Gotham. Chicago. Oh, Chicago. Yep. It is a Chicago, another Chicago detective series. I remember my mom loves those, the V.I. the Paretsky, V.I. Warshawski detective novels. I remember I've read a couple of them over the years. Yeah, my mom loves Warshawski, and my dad is all about uh, Robert Parker's Spencer. I see where your love of noir comes in. Yep. Yeah, my, both my parents, big mystery novel fans. You come by it honestly, man. Yep. And one of my uncles is a major Sherlockian. So, yeah, it, it's just, it's all, it was all around me. I was, I was doomed from the outset to be into detective fiction. Only I, of course, wound up focusing on the guy with the pointy ears and the cape. Very good, Matt. Very good. I love a story where we see what a good man Jim Gordon is. Absolutely. 100% willing to sacrifice himself for his niece and willing to play it out, to go to the final degree, to stand up and say, you can beat me, you can torture me, you can still fuck off. Like, this is the same Gordon who... You know, we'll take that corrupt police captain, I think, and uh, beat him half to death in the forest with a baseball bat, right? This is a this is a Gordon who doesn't take anything. Lieutenant. Flass was a lieutenant. But yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of Gordon stories we're going to eventually have to cover because there is a miniseries, I believe, by Denny O'Neill that does explain what happened to get Jim out of Chicago. And it's it's hinted at here as some kind of scandal. Yeah, it's, it is a four-issue miniseries. Is it by Denny? Yeah, Denny O'Neill, illustrated by Dick Giordano, called Gordon of Gotham. And it's the stories about Jim Gordon's life prior to coming to Gotham City. It's been a long time since I read it. I believe that that answers the question of why Gordon had to leave Chicago. I bet it's some good shit. That is a solid creative team. I, I'm sure it is not available on Infinite, so we'd have to track it down. But it would probably be worth it. We also see... Oh, you are incorrect. It, it is? is available. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, that's good to know. The other it, thing that um, it it comes in a trade with Gordon of Gotham, Batman GCPD one through four, and Gordon's Law one through four. The other two are Dixon miniseries. Yeah, he is the first creator listed on the cover. Yeah, so uh, Dixon, O'Neill, Jansen, Paro, <laughs> Bill. I won't attempt to pronounce that name. Sinkevich. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's that's good to know because that would be one to cover someday because we've got some Jim Gordon stories that we need to discuss so with Joker and Night Cries and Black Mirror 
and uh duty there's a two issue legends of the dark knight arc about the first time batman was out of gotham when the joker went on a rampage and gordon had to deal with it Eh, duty but the other thing that i love about this is yeah gordon is tough as nails gordon is stealing his spine but when he's left alone with this young cop who is working with the corrupt inspector hatchet because his dad worked with hatchet jim tries to talk him around oh exactly like i I think for gordon violence is not the first option with batman sometimes it is but gordon i think sees the best in people gordon wants to see a way through to reason and to dialogue and to believing the best. And he does believe that this son of a crooked cop can be redeemed. And our corrupt politician that all of these cops are working under the auspices of, but not loyal to, they're all loyal to Hatchet, who's the, the head of this unit. A couple of the guys are talking and they're like, yeah, we're not going to listen to him. Oh, but Hatcha told us, like, oh, okay, so then we'll stay. Uh, yeah. Right. It's the twisted loyalties. But this guy and Ostrander writes very honestly that this politician, this Alderman Masaryk, has run mostly on racist lines. This is a guy who is keeping people of color out of his district. So oh, he and, can... Go- and Gordon has such a good line, right? Yes. The the kid the kid talks about oh this guy keeps the Canadians out of our neighborhoods like oh oh you mean you mean black people I forgot how much hard work it was to be a racist so you could talk about this stuff in public. Yep, exactly. I have that line. I highlighted that because it's such a great line. In any room, Gordon should be the smartest, and he should be the most ethically true. That's the core of who Jim Gordon is as as a character. He is not stupid, and he is a fundamentally good man. Yes. It's why I love what Rom V has been doing in Detective, where he's, you know, when he's had to take care of Batman, he keeps the lights down, he bandages his face in the dark, so he maintains plausible deniability. I don't want to know. Right. For sure. I exactly. Can, I, I know, but I don't really want to know. Right. Because Gordon knows. Yeah. And again, the new 52 made it a little too on the nose. Super heavy makes it, he says it for all intents and purposes. But there's a great Jim Gordon's retirement party story after Officer Down. There's just, just great one-off with this, you know, retirement dinner and Bruce is at the retirement dinner and Gordon is just kind of knowingly looking at him as Bruce has to have this bodyguard on his shoulder and just like smiling at the whole situation. And it's so obvious that he knows, but he doesn't say anything. He just lets it go. Then when Bruce has to be clumsy, he's just kind of smirking. Uh Uh-huh. That's exactly how that relationship should be. And again, this is another story where you get such great character moments in 
a story that moves at a really nice clip. These three issues read very fast and really, they go down real smooth. And I love, there's the moment in the end where they've brought Barbara and James Jr. from Gotham. Hatchet has brought them there. And it's Barbara who winds up breaking and telling Hatchet that it's Babs who was the witness. Because she's just don't kill my son. Gordon, Jim's like, they're going to kill us anyway. We're here. We're not making it out of here alive. But then when Babs, who's figured out where they are, which is great, she's just like, I just called the police. And then Hatchet just picks up his own phone. He's like, yeah, you had a 911. Disregard. Disregard. Go, Go get yourself some sausage. It's all good. Babs has not learned just how broken the system is yet. You know, you got a final fight up on a roof. And this is just a really well done story. Absolutely. And I I think that's probably it for me. Uh, that means it's time to put Legends of the Dark Knight 159 to 161 loyalties on the big board. I will give you the ceiling. I will okay. do that for you. Golem of Gotham at 40. I was looking in between the the two we've done so far. I'm thinking somewhere in the 60s. Maybe the 50s, but 50s or 60s. So really good, really strong stories. I think Venom is a more flawed story at 58, but it's more important. Yes. Yes. I was looking right around there. I would probably put this above Hush at 66 because Hush is ass. Hush is overly long. I would also put it above, speaking of, you know, stuff that has a good amount of Gordon in it, uh, Return of Scarface at 65. That has some really nice Jim and Sarah stuff. But I think this this is is stronger than that. How about the new 61? Okay, in between Birth of the Demon and Bloodstorm? Yeah. I can go with that. I was looking with 61, 62, so I think this is, yeah, I think that's a good spot. 61 it is. That does it for tonight. And hey, speaking of Barbara Gordon, next week we're doing three stories featuring Barbara Gordon as Batgirl and in her transition from Batgirl to Oracle. We would like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jen Kimman, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubats, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sraggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You so f- many wheels. <laughs> wheels within wheels. Oh, shit. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. 
If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>